following sermon is brought to you by Genuine, the college ministry of Coggan Avenue Baptist Church. More information about our ministry is available at www.cogginchurch.org forward slash university. Well, glad you guys are back tonight. If you have your Bibles, um, you're going to need to open those up to the book of Genesis. That's where we're going to be. For a huge chunk of what we're talking about tonight, we're going to have to go back to, to Luke chapter 8. It's kind of a jumping off point, but then we're going to spend some time in Genesis chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll flop, uh, flip over to Luke chapter, um, chapter 4 for just a minute. But man, everyone's weak, good, you still making it? Homework, tests, grades, class? Okay, man, I feel for you guys this semester. It's chapter 3. <clears throat> We're at a kind of a pivotal m- moment in culture. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's something new that's happening inside of culture, um, but it is something that, at least in, in my lifetime, I've never seen it more, more acute. Um, but we started uh, last week a series, if you're, if you're just jumping in this week, we started a series last week just called Enemies of the Faith, and we're taking this semester, and we're going to be looking a lot at faith, what it is, what it does inside the life of the believer. So we wanted to start talking about enemies of the faith and how Jesus comes in and meets us in these moments as we're combating these enemies of the faith. And the the three that we're talking about are Satan, the flesh, and the world. So last week, we started talking about, we started talking about Satan. Um, And so we're going to, we're going to spend a little more time tonight talking about him. But back to what I was saying just a second ago, we're in this like really unique moment inside of culture right now, um, at least something that I've, I haven't seen before. Um, Barack Obama did an interview with David Letterman a, a couple of years ago, and something that he said was, um, I think, was really on point with where we find ourselves today. Barack Obama said this, one of the biggest challenges we have to our democracy is the degree to which we do not have a common baseline for facts, okay? So what he's trying to say is if you want, if you now begin to have conversations with people about what the quote-unquote facts are, everyone now is functioning and working in within a different definition of even what constitutes as a fact. The Rand Corporation um, wrote a huge book. They did this study. Um, they're a political kind of, kind of thing, and they wrote this book, and they um, they said that the thing that defines our culture right now is truth decay. Truth decay is our cultural moment. M- maybe you've seen these, okay? Do you mean, all right, Will Ferrell helping us out here, all right? Uh, phrases, like fake, phase, phrases like fake news or, or this one right here. I don't always lie, but when I do, they're called alternate facts, all right? Everyone, anyone heard alternate facts? Um, so things like alternate facts, fake news, truth decay, no baseline for facts and things that are going on. Listen, we find ourselves in this, in this moment, this cultural moment, where there is this, like, this war on truth that is happening. Now, in all fairness, the war on truth actually is rooted more um, and started back in the 1960s with French philosophers. Um, you may not know their names, but Foucault and Derrida and these kind of guys, they're the ones that actually kicked off what, is, what was known as the postmodern movement, Okay. And so the postmodern movement actually began in the 60s with French philosophers and guys like this that says truth is no longer this objective thing that is outside of us that we must submit to, all right? That's not truth anymore. What truth is now is it's a subjective thing that is inside of us, and you and I now get to dictate and declare 
what truth is. And listen, when this kind of crept into culture, it started this cultural deconstructionism that began to happen where we were kind of, um, man began to see themselves. want So you can define the family however you want. You can define sexuality however you want. You can define, pick and name it. And so we're now living in the fallout of what's happened here. And it's right here inside of this cultural moment of truth decay that I find the teachings of Jesus more compelling now than I ever have. More compelling now than I ever have. Because we live in the middle of this war between truth and lie. Truth and lie. And the reality is, is if you read your Bible and you spend much time with your Bible, it's a war that's millennia, millennia old, all right? It's been around since the beginning of a time, but for some reason, at least for me, it feels more acute today than it than it ever has. So Jesus, if you were here last week, we started looking at John chapter 8, and we said Jesus ties lies and deception and temptation. He links a lot of this to a creature called the Satan, all right, or the devil inside of the Bible. So we spent some time last week unpacking who the devil is and what he does. So a few of the things that we said are that he's real, all right, um, that, that he's real. According to Jesus in John chapter 8, he is a liar, he is a, a murderer. And so his his primary means of spiritual warfare against you and I is lies and deception. A lot of times when we think about spiritual warfare, we think about things like demonic possession or disaster or disease or these kind. And, and I'm not saying that those the devil sometimes is not involved in those things. Sure he is. But that second, third kind of tier tactics of the enemy, his primary strategy against you and I is going to be the stratagem of lies of lies and deception. This is the primary way that he is going to attack us. So we said it this way last week, that he plants deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires that we have that begin to be normalized in a sinful society. So, so this, is what is, that is, this is what is happening. And the tricky thing is that lies masquerade as truth. And here's the deal. Not only is the devil a liar, I would argue that he is a very good one right? Like if you have categories of lies, let me, let me help you up your lying game, all right? Um, if you have like categories of lies, okay, the worst kind of lies generally are lies that are just out and out outlandish. Like, dude, I can bench press a thousand pounds, all right? You're, you're going to hear me say something like that. You didn't laugh. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me up the weight. I can bench press 3,000, all right? Uh, like, you hear me say something like that, and if you, if you spent any time in the, in, in the weight room or whatever, you're like, dude, you cannot bench press like a thousand pounds. Like, I know that, shut your face. But it's still, like it's one, like outlandish, they're, they're the worst ones because usually, normally, we can spot really outlandish lies. Like things that are just, just out there. If you, if you want to up, up your game, um, the next best lies are the ones that are, they're kind of true but not the whole truth. Like they paint one side of the argument. This is, this is totally what happens inside of our political arena right now. And there's a proverb that says one side of the argument is always right until the other side is heard. Have you ever had someone come up to you and be like, let me tell you what Sally did. I don't know any Sally, so hope your name is Sally, all right? And then you go and you talk to Sally and you say, yeah, well, let me tell you what Bertha did. I don't know any Bertha's either. Let me tell you what Bertha did, all right? And then you hear Sally's side and you think, how horrible is birth? Has that ever happened to you? Like you talk with someone, they give you one side. They just don't give you, they give you the truth, but not the whole truth, right? And then if you want to up your game even, even further, the best lies are those that are mostly true. Like 98% 
true, maybe 2% falsehood. There's just enough truth inside of the lie to make it sound legitimate. So listen, Satan, Satan functions in this. In John chapter 8, 44, I'm just going to read these, um, this passage right here. This is what Jesus said last week. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what Jesus does here Um, Let me tell you what he does here. We're going to read Genesis chapter 3 and pray, and then we're just going to unpack a a few things here, okay? What Jesus does here is when he says that he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, Jesus is jumping all the way back to Genesis Genesis chapter 3. So there's some things going on here. If you're um, late modern Westerner, sometimes it's easy to write this story off because you're like, dude, there's a talking snake on page 3. Like, I'm out, all right? Um, And I get that, but listen. Whether or not you, you read this story as an actual historical event where there's a real talking snake, um, or you just see it as kind of ancient Near Eastern imagery against Babylonian, kind of chaos images that, that cause all kinds of chaos and, and destruction, that's a question about a genre, not theology. What I want you to see here is that either way you read this story, this story is true. This happened. There was a break in the cosmos when man rebelled against their, when the creation rebelled against their creator, and this is what kicked everything off. So Genesis chapter 3, let's read this. Travis, would you kind of roll through that for people um, there in the back that are going to be using the screen? So here's what he says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So immediately, the first thing that we see coming out of the enemy's mouth is he's trying to place doubt. He's reordering the words of God. No mention of like all the other trees in the garden they can eat from. No mention of life. No mention of all these kinds of things. He he immediately begins to doubt and distort the very things that, that God said. Did God really say none of these trees? You, you can't eat a single thing, a single, single fruit of any of the trees in this garden. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he goes from doubting to denying to just outright distorting. And here's one of the things that Satan is going to do in your life when it comes to this temptation. Notice he, 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 when, he, when he speaks with Eve, he talks about all of the things that, she, that she's going to gain and never the things that she's going to lose. All right? And this is one of the ways that he's going to distort and deceive and just outright lie inside of our lives. So keep going, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both 
were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and, uh, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So for the first time, you have Adam and Eve hiding, hiding from the Lord. This is one of the things that sin will do in your life. A lot of times when we're sin, uh, when we're sin and we feel trapped in sin, isolation and hiding are some of the things that we run to. There's some of the things that we run to. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. So here we see another thing, blame shifting, all right? If there's something that we run from, it's accountability, okay? So, so here, uh, Adam, when he sees Eve in chapter 2, he's like, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He like breaks out in this Disney-type song of poetry, right? And then now sin has happened, and God's coming walking through the garden. He's like, this woman that you gave me, all right, almost kind of insinuating that God's responsible for what's happened here, right? This woman that you gave me, she's the one. And so, listen, this is something that um, destroys relationships even to this day now. Blame shifting, running, and hiding, not taking accountability for your actions. So verse, verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, here's moving the blame around again. So verse 14, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel all right let's pray and then we're going to unpack a few things out of here and we'll be done all right pray with me father thank you for um thank you for tonight and for the chance to be together and, and gather together and open up your word and look at it and, and try to see what is inside of here. So, Lord, my prayer tonight um, has continued to be that you'd really help us discern lies of the enemy from truth of a Savior. And, Lord, that we'd really be able to identify lies that the enemy is, is speaking into our lives so that we can, we can take that lie, bring it, underneath the authority of truth. And God, as we see truth, we can live into the reality that you have laid out for us, what is really true and good and beautiful. God, that the way we think about life and how life is meant to be lived, Lord, that we would, we would exchange our understanding of that and our culture's understanding of that or maybe even a broken family's understanding of that and we would exchange that for truth, the truth that you declare to us, Lord, as we apprentice underneath Jesus, that more and more our lives would become, um, would look like his as we walk in, as we walk in truth. God, would you do those things tonight? And would you help me just um, speak these things well as we look at them? For I ask these things in, in Christ's name, amen. Okay, is anyone else getting hot? Yes, Chad, where's Chad? Is he still in here? Could you go bump that AC down? 
That would be epic. I'm hot. Not like hot magazine, but like I'm hot. Like I have. All right, so here we go. Um, there are three primary, uh, primary areas of lies that Satan's going to attack you in, okay? The first one is this. The first one is who is God? Satan wants to attack your theology, all right? This is one of the first things that he's going to go for because what he needs to do is distort and, and deceive and lie to you about who God is and what God wants for you. So there's three primary areas that we see in here, and the first one is your theology. Look at what he says here at the end of verse 1. So we said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Don't touch it or you'll die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's, here's the deception that Satan begins to weave into her heart. Listen, God is holding out on you. All right? God is holding back something from you. God is not who he claims to be. God is wanting to keep something from you that if you were to have would make you happy. He, all right, the liar and the deceiver, tries to flip the script on God and in some way paint God as a liar and a deceiver. He's holding out on you. It's a distortion of a vision of who God is. Because listen, if you have a vision of God who is generous and has good intentions for you and is calling you to what is true and lovely and beautiful and good, you live into that truth and that reality. But if God is petty and is holding out or you know better than him, it's it undermines, it completely undermines your trust in the Lord. So one of the first things that Satan is going to do is try to attack your theology, your understanding of who God is. A.W. Tozer, we talk about this, this all the time, says this, the most important thing about you and me is what we think about when we think about God. Because we're going to live our lives living into that reality of our understanding of who God is. So it is imperatively important that we believe good, right, and true things about God about God. This is why one of the things that Satan loves to do in the midst, especially of suffering, is whisper the lies that God's not strong enough to do anything about it. That if God really cared about you, he wouldn't let this happen. That if God really loved you, um, this wouldn't be going on in your life. That God has left you. These are lies. The first thing that he is going to attack is your, is your theology. The second thing that he's going to attack, all right, is your anthropology, all right, or what does it mean to be human? He has to attack who, um, who are we or who, who am I? Your understanding of what it means to be human. And he does this by saying, look here at verse, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, that you, you can become not just God-like, but you can become God. The interpretation of this is, you are free to decide to be whatever you want. You're the captain of your own soul, all right? Um, you're not a human being with a, with a place in the cosmos below the creator, but above the creation. You don't have limits. Listen, transgress your limits and your boundaries. There are, there are none. You can be God, discerning whatever you want to be, the captain of your own ship, the captain of your own soul. It's a distortion of who we are. Listen, God, humanity has limits. We're not omniscient. 
All right? We're, we don't know the thing, everything that God knows. We reach for attributes that are only true of God when we buy into this distortion. So instead of trusting God's omniscience, we attempt to be all-knowing ourselves. All right? Or instead of, instead of celebrating God's power, we seek to exert power in all spheres of influence that we have. In craving limitlessness, we foolishly think, listen, that we are capable of wielding it and that we are entitled to possess it. So there's this really good book by Jen Wilkin. If you haven't read it, I really encourage you to read it. A couple of our small groups read it last year called None Like Him. And Line Crossers, Boundary Breakers, Fence Jumpers, carrying inside of us a warped belief that our heavenly parent wants to withhold from us something that is needful and pleasurable. Even as we enjoy his good gifts, we feel a hyper-awareness of the boundaries that he has set, and we question their validity. Though he gives us 19 gifts and warns us away from one danger, we suspect that what is withheld is not dangerous, but desirable. Being created in the image of God is not licensed to become like God. We are capable of bearing his image as we were intended only when we embrace our limits. Image bearing means becoming fully human, not becoming divine. But this is exactly the lie that Satan whispers into into our ears. All right? So he has to attack your notion and your understanding of who God is. He then has to attack your understanding of what it means to be human or your very identity of, of who you are. And here's the last thing that he attacks inside of this. He attacks your understanding of morality, of what is the good, what is the good life? What is the good life? Down at verse 6, um, verse 6 says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was, now here's something interesting inside of the language that's happening here. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now there's two meanings of that word good there, all right? If you, if you think back to the creation accounts, what does God say after every time he creates something? And the Lord said what? It was Good. So you have God all throughout the Genesis narrative of one and two creating and declaring this is good. He creates this is good. He creates again this is good. So God in his creation is declaring things good and now you have Eve independent of God declaring something good that God has declared not not good. Not just that it was good for food, but she's making a declaration here about morality and choices. So it says that she looks at the tree, she sees that it's good for food, that it's a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took its fruit and ate, and then she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So the interpretation here, man, and this is like rampant. You can decide what is good and beautiful and true apart from God. You don't need him. You don't need him to walk you through this. If you, listen, if you want it, take it. If it feels good, do it. Do it. It's a distortion of morality and our ability to find good apart from a stand, the standard of what is actually good. So listen, these, these are Satan's lies and and. Man, I see these three things happening everywhere inside of culture right now. 
Like these things, so this isn't something new, all right? The things that we're seeing inside of culture, even today, it's not something new. They're as old as time, and especially in secular culture, um, there was a philosopher that, um, um, that declared uh, that God is now dead, all right? So culture right now, at least secular culture, separated from God, um, one of the things that it's really trying to say right now is that there is no God. We know better. We need to attempt to live, um, and uh, our, our society needs to be lived in this, in this attempt that there is no God. Now, here's why. Here's why at least secular culture is, is attacking this notion of, of God. Um, because your, your morality, your understanding of morality is based upon your understanding of of man and who we are, of your anthropology, and your anthropology is, is rooted in your understanding about who God is. Or, or, or let me say it this way. What we believe about the good life is based on what we believe about what it means to be human. And that is based on what we believe about God. All right? So if he can unravel your notions of God, he can unravel your understanding of what it means to be human, and then he can unravel your understanding of morality. Okay? Because think, think about it this way. Think about it this way. If there is a creator, if there's a creator, then there is design. And if there is design, then there is intent in that design. And if there's intention, then there is morality, and if there is morality, there is accountability. The very thing that we run from, the very thing that we see Adam and Eve running from. So listen, when Satan lies, these are the three places that he's going to try to attack and sow lies and dissension and doubt and, and deception and your understanding of who God is and your understanding of who you are and your identity and what it means to be human and then in your understanding of, of morality. Now, why, why is he going to do that? All right. Why does he, all right, we talked about last week, why does he plant these deceptive ideas that appeal to these disordered desires that begin to be normalized, normalized in, in society? All right, so here's, here's the premise here. Let me give this. Here's why he does it. Here's why he does it. Because it is by the Spirit and truth that we are transformed into the image of Christ and set free to live in line with all that is good in the world. It's by the spirit and truth that you're transformed. But it is by uh, isolation and lies that we are deformed into the image of Satan and enslaved in a life of evil and death. So it is by the spirit and truth that we're transformed, but it is through lies and isolation that we are not transformed, but deformed, but deformed. So listen, we need spirit. We need spirit and Spirit and truth. So let me walk through these two things really quick. Um, he defines it as this, God's empowering presence in our life. Um, we need the presence of God. We need God showing up in our lives if we are going to be changed and transformed. God's empowering presence. And so listen, we see this in the person and work of Jesus. Like Jesus shows up as God in the flesh. Emmanuel means what? God what? with us. So Jesus shows up as presence, God's presence in the world. And then upon his ascension, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, John 14, 16 through 17 says this. You're going to see these two things linked together. 
But Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So so spirit, we need the spirit's presence, God's empowering presence in our life, but we also need truth. We need truth. Remember we said last week, truth, a simple definition of truth is just reality. It's real. It's what's true. Um, unreality or lies, um, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. Like I said, if I want to say, hey, I'm going to jump off this building, and I jump off the building because I think I can fly, reality is what I run into a couple seconds later, right? The lie is revealed for what it is. Truth is Truth is reality, and the spirit is, um, um, the truth is we need both. We need presence, and we need truth. We need both. If you have someone's presence but no truth, um, uh, you may feel a little comforted, but you don't have like, okay, well, where do I go here? Like, what do, what do I do? I know you're here, but what do I need to be doing? If you have truth but no presence, or no relationship that's changed, like I've never met anyone that was like, dude, I read Wikipedia and my life has been forever changed. Because Wikipedia just, like, I've never met anyone. So it's spirit and truth, spirit and truth together. This is why Jesus comes as spirit, all right? And by way of illustration, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Um, so I grew up, um, I grew up down, in, down around Corpus Christi, and I was fortunate enough in my life to grow up with two parents that loved Jesus um, taught me a lot about Jesus when, when I was growing up. Not only did I have parents, but I had, like, grandparents. My grandfather um, was probably one of the most influential people in my life. He taught me about prayer. He taught me about the Bible. He taught me about suffering. He taught me how to, he taught me how to throw a baseball. He taught me how to swim. Like, these are, so, so I had, like, this, this awesome familial kind of presence in my life, and it wasn't just it wasn't just presence and relationship, but it was, it was truth. Godly parenting, all right, is one of the most influential, beneficial things in your life. When, when parents are present and parents are speaking truth into your life, presence and truth can form you and shape you. They're, they're transformative, which is why one of the most deformed things is parents who are what? Who are not present, all right? Who are not present, and who lie to you and do not speak truth into your life. This is destructive. This is destructive. So listen, we're formed into the image of Christ through spirit and truth, all right? But we're deformed through lies and isolation. Listen, I'm going to argue in here that many of the worst things in your life, if, I, if, if we could all like open up, we won't do this, all right? So don't get scared. Um, but I said, let's like, what's the worst thing you ever did? like the worst thing you ever did that you absolutely regret. Um, I, I, I would argue that many of the worst things we do are not when we are uh, in the company of people who are like godly influences and speaking truth into our life. Like if, if you have a great family, like probably if you have a great family, like me, like after Thanksgiving dinner, granny doesn't walk in, let's go rob a bank. Like that doesn't happen, right? Like like, we're like, let's go watch the cowboy game. Let's, most of the things that we do inside of our life, that if we look back and we're like, worst decision ever, was not when we were in spirit-empowered community where people were speaking truth into our life. Most of it is done when we were in isolation and we were believing things that were, that were not true. Listen, for better or worse, community affects you. Listen to me. 
Community affects you, and if we know this, listen to me, the devil knows it too. The devil knows it too. So, so then, all right, if that's his strategy, then what do we do? Two things and we're out of here. All right, here they are. The first one I already gave you, the Spirit's presence, the Spirit's presence, union with Christ. Um, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read this, point these two things out, and we're done, all right? Luke chapter 4. Flip there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 4, we'll start in verse, we'll start in verse 1. start in verse 1. Look here at verses 1 through, 1 through 13. It says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So here's what I want you to see. Here's Spirit-empowered presence, right? Here's the presence of God, the Spirit empowering the life and the ministry of Jesus. Then look in... Um, uh, the end of verse 2. And when they were ended, the 40 days that he was out in the thing, in the wilderness, not the thing, the wilderness, all right? Um, that's the message. Uh, uh, and when they were ended, he was hungry, all right? Understatement of the year. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him. Now listen, here's one of the things that you're supposed to see when you read this. You're supposed to hear echoes back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. To walk in, in, in fellowship with the Spirit and to believe truth, Jesus is now going, going to succeed. In, in, Gen, in Luke chapter 3, Jesus, when he's getting baptized, like the Spirit like floats down in the form of a dove, all right, and there's, what, what happened, there's this voice from heaven, and what does the voice say? Remember what the voice says? Okay, I'll tell you. Yeah, this Jesus, this is my son whom I love. So there's this voice from heaven that declares, makes a declaration, leans into Jesus and declares something about him, what to do. And what is Satan doing in the temptation in the garden? Did God really say that you're his son? Like if you're really his son, why don't you? And now the battle begins, the battle begins to get played out. So verse four, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy again. Look at verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written. So now here is Satan quoting and using the Bible to get Jesus to do something he's, that he knows is, is wrong. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, not just once, but twice he quotes scripture and their hands, they shall bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered again from the book of Deuteronomy, quoting scripture, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What were the two things that Jesus used to stand against the onslaught and the lies of the enemy? Presence, the spirit's presence inside of his life. And listen, 
truth. Truth. And the second thing that we see Jesus doing is practice these spiritual practices, okay? He's fasting, he's in solitude, he's in prayer, and he is quoting the Bible. He's quoting the Bible. Let me tell you two things. If you are going to stand against the onslaught of the devil and the lies and deception that he's going to speak into your life, listen to me very closely here. You are going to need spirit-empowered community in your life in two ways. The first way is this. You are going to need to have fellowship with the spirit of the living God, which means this. If you are not a Christian, if you're not a Jesus follower, if, you, if you're not apprenticing under the person of Jesus Christ, you do not have fellowship with the spirit of God. The spirit of God does not dwell in you. Your relationship with Jesus has not begun yet. All right? So, so you need spirit-empowered presence, which means not only a relationship with Jesus, to become a Jesus follower, to, to, to submit yourself and a, to apprentice underneath the person of Christ, but you also need spirit-empowered community, all right? You need other people that are united with Christ like you to speak truth into your life, but you don't just need spirit-empowered presence and community in your life, but listen, you need truth, you need God's word. When the enemy comes, Jesus stands in truth. There's a couple of passages, John 17, 17. I quote these all the time. Um, sorry, Steve Porter. We're going to miss you. Um, John 17, 17 says this. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So, so if truth is what we need to stand against lie, where is truth going to be found? Listen. Culture is not the harbinger of truth. Like you and I are not smart enough in and of ourselves to be able to discern and decide everything that is right, true, good, and beautiful. And the reality is truth is objective. It stands outside of us and over us. It's not subjective, something inside of us that we get to decide. Your word is True. This is why we are constantly coming back to Scripture. We want to we think God's thoughts after God. We want to love the things that God loves. And Ephesians chapter 6, this whole thing about spiritual warfare, in Ephesians chapter 6, there's one offensive weapon. He says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How will you take your stand against the devil's... Listen, what's your community like? In, in, in a couple ways, do you know Jesus? Like, I'm serious. Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about just knowing some things about him. There's a difference between knowing some facts. I mean, gosh, we've grown up in America. We've been to enough Christmas and Easter's that you know some facts about Jesus. Where he was born, what his mama's name was, what his, what his earthly dad's name was, where he grew up, what he... I mean, you, you can give some... But do you... Do you know him? Do you, have, do you believe that in Christ and in him alone, man, I can't do it. I can't conquer sin and death on my own with my religious religiosity or my morality or my just being kind. Like there are things that are wrong in me that I cannot fix. I need Jesus. Do you have a relationship? Are you in community with Jesus? And then... What's your community with other believers look like? Do you have truth tellers 
that practice presence inside of your life? Right? Do you have community? And then are you listening? Are you listening and submitting to the word of God? So um, let me tell you the most recent way that this has looked in my life, okay? In depression, call, call my name is Hope. Uh, you'll remember this, but I've never struggled with anxiety or, or depression or anything like that um, until about two years ago. And I don't really know what happened. I don't really know what was going on. I remember where I was. It was March of 2017, sitting on my couch in my room. And for the first time in my life, um, I think I had uh, the start, uh, I guess, I mean, the way people describe it was the start of like a panic attack for the first time in my life. Really freaked me out, okay? Uh, I've always been one of those people that's like, just stop worrying. Like, why don't you get over it, all right? Like, I, I don't understand, like, why it's not that big a deal. Nothing's happened. Um, until two years ago. And it's, it's been um, a weird ride for me the last couple of years. Like, the Lord's been teaching me some things um, through this. It's, most of the time, it's, it's not an issue. But I went on vacation with my family back in uh, August, and we were going down to Galveston uh, for a lot of different reasons. We were headed down to Galveston, and um, I was going through, like, my Facebook feed or whatever, posting some stuff. And right across my Facebook feed came this post about um, man loses leg to flesh-eating disease in Galveston, right? So like, so, like, for some reason, like, I see that. I'm like, we're going to Galveston. We're all going to get flesh-eating disease and die, all right? So, so, like, in my head, this is what happens. And I'm thinking, that is dumb. We're going to go to get down to Galveston and have fun. So we go down to Galveston, and we're... We're, we get there on a Thursday, we go to the beach that night, we get there Friday, things are going awesome on Friday, and Saturday morning, our last full day there, um, about, f- uh, about four o'clock in the morning, my son, uh, Easton, wakes me up, wakes me up, it's about four o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, okay, bud, we're like, what's going on? He's like, dad, my foot is killing me. Like, my foot is killing me. And I look back, and sure enough, like, one of his toes is, like, swollen, and it's getting... So now, I'm, like, thinking through everything I read in that article, right? Like, okay, flesh-eating disease, what happens? Like, it's swelling and soreness. So I'm, like, I'm like mashing on his foot. I'm, like, no, I think it's okay, you know? And so, so we go. So, so I put, like, some little Neosporin on his so send him to bed, all right? And from 4 o'clock on, that's it, man, I'm done, can't sleep. Um... That entire rest of that day, I feel like I am on the verge of this, like, like just anxiety. I'm like, my son's going to lose. He was fine. Like, he was running. Like, he didn't care. But it was like some switch had been, had been thrown. So what do I do in that moment? Like, what do I do in that moment? I, I, part, of, part of what I wanted to do was maybe just, like, go up, get on the couch, thumb in my mouth, kind of staring rock, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, it was like, well, I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's like these, these kind of things. But, but I'm sitting, I'm thinking, what do I do? So I grab my phone, and there's three or four guys that I'm in accountability with that I talk about. I got some spirit-empowered community in my life. And I text these guys, and I'm like, guys, I don't really know what's going on. I feel like the last day of my vacation is like being robbed from me. Um, this is what's happened. Would you pray for me right now? And immediately, I get these texts back, praying, brother, praying, brother. One of the guys, um, a good friend of mine, calls me, says, hey, tell me what's going on. Tell me what's going on in your mind. And man, in that moment, this friend of mine that calls me, he became the hands and feet of Jesus in my life at that moment. I began to practice this presence 
not only talking with the Lord about things, but this friend calling me, this presence inside of my life, he begins to quote scripture to me. Here's the truth. And it wasn't, hey, it's not flesh-eating disease, all right? I mean, it, it wasn't, okay? He still has his foot. Um, but but um, it was like, hey, if it is, the Lord's going to help you walk through that. The Lord's going to walk with you through this. We're going to get this. You know, it wasn't this try to just like whitewash everything and slap some pat answers on, on stuff. Man, there was presence and there was truth. And, and man, I'm not going to tell you that that day it got great because it, it didn't. I feel like there was a wrestling with that the rest of the day. But there was this, this standing, this standing with spirit-empowered community in my life and truth speaking in and over me. Not this like frenzied, just, just standing in, in truth and in community. Listen, are these things playing out in your life? Are they playing out in your life? Um, what I want us to do tonight here as we kind of close this out, yes, we're going to close this out here, is I've got a couple passages of scripture up here um, that I just want us to read together uh, as, a, as, as family kind of here. We'll kind of read these passages together. But um, listen, if you do, if you practice these things long enough inside of community with others, you begin to watch the spirit of God and truth transform you. Listen to me closely. This doesn't happen overnight. There are things that are still changing in me that are, some of them have taken years to happen. Years. I, I, years, okay? Just some things have taken years. But doing these things long enough inside of community with others, you watch what the Spirit of God and truth and truth can do. This is how we stand this is how we stand, and this is how we fight. So here's what I want us to do tonight. I want us to stand together, and uh, um, this is and this is kind of how we're going to close this evening. Um, we're just going to read um, read a few of these passages of scripture together, and then the last one we say Amen, and you guys will be dismissed, and you can head to CAG or go study for your test or or whatever whatever it is you're going to do. So um, let's just read these together as a as a community as as we just kind of speak truth. Here's the first one, Ephesians six ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Next one, James 4. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever.